this is the small print edition of the NIV, suitable for Filipino beaches and weekend trips. The uh, scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 129. 139. What did I say? It should be 39. Uh, 139, yes. That's, that's where I am. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jen. On some level, it doesn't matter, I guess, what uh, psalm she read. They're all pretty good. <laughs> but that was the one that was intended, so I'm perfect. <sighs> is anyone else hot in here? <laughs> the offices were freezing this week. Well, not literally, but we're very cold. And so we had to turn on the boiler system. But I think God missed the memo that when we turn on the boiler system, that means the weather's supposed to be cold after that, so it doesn't get too hot in here. But anyway, so sorry about that, but we may have a few, uh, depending on the weather. Um, anyway, 
If you're really hot, go, you can go sit by a, a window or, a, or go outside. I won't be offended. I'll trust that it was for uh, good reasons. Some of you uh, know my eldest daughter. Some of you know her as a really quiet and reserved girl. Well, some of you know her as super chatty and unreserved. Both are true of who she is. And I can remember the first time that I was jealous of her. Are parents allowed to, to say that? I think we should be. She was having a play date with a few of her friends, and enough friends that when I remember the story, I usually think of it as a party, not just a play date. But as young kids tend to be, and I think she was around six, uh, they make a ton of noise playing in the basement, right? Really raucous laughing and being really busy everywhere. Uh, and so at one point, we uh, went and looked to check in on them, and Chloe wasn't there. Apparently, at some point, she had left her friends that she had invited over and gone upstairs to her room by herself. I was going to tell a story of another friend who did that once and went, invited friends over and then went to bed, but I, I, I won't embarrass you, Rodway. <laughs> Shoot, I told myself I wouldn't tell that story, but I just... Right. As a parent, I'm thinking all kinds of different things. Was she hurt by something that someone had said or done to her? And so she's like upstairs crying? Or is she, was she feeling left out? So she's just hiding in her room, kind of feeling sorry for herself. Or if nothing was wrong, well, it's kind of rude of her to invite friends over and then just leave, right? Like, teachable moment. I mean, social expectations and all that, right? I say that facetiously, of course. But Now, all of these thoughts, of course, were actually me projecting my own experiences of my childhood onto her. When we went upstairs and we found her in her room, none of these things were true. We found her just sitting in her room reading. And we said, hey, sweetie, is, is everything okay? Like, why are you in your room? Why are you all by yourself when your friend's here? Did something happen? And her response was something along the lines of, no, I just needed some alone time to myself to re-energize. I'll be down in a few minutes when I'm recharged. Now, here was this little kid who at age six already knew that she was an introvert. An introvert is a person whose energy is drained by being around people and so needs solitude to recharge. And an extrovert is a person who, when they're with a crowd of people, they actually get energy from it. At six, she knew a part of who she was and she knew what she needed to do to take care of herself. I was in my mid-30s <laughs> And while I knew I was introverted, I still didn't have good tools for taking care of myself in that way. I've been in so many experiences where I've burned up all of my internal energy without the self-awareness that it isn't that I'm sick of people or the people that I'm with or that I'm a terrible human being for not enjoying being around them anymore. It's simply that I had burned up all of my social energy and I need my pull myself away to recharge. And while I kind of jokingly say that I was jealous of her self-awareness, more than that, I was, out, I was happy to know that my daughter already had tools to help her navigate life in a healthy way, a way that took me into my adult years to discover and continue to discover. 
As a result of my personal mix of introversion and undiagnosed depression, along with other blind spots, I always felt like there was something wrong with me, that I regularly wanted to escape from social settings or hide in bed under the covers for a day at a time. And it was just because of my lack, not just, but because of my lack of self-awareness, instead of finding and living out healthy ways to care for myself, I often lived out unhealthy patterns of isolation and self-rejection, which also limited my ability to love others well. It also meant that I would try to be someone else. I would try to live out what was expected of me, what society or what Christian culture, the, the, the ideal extroverted pastor, what the ideal person was, the quintessential nice guy or funny guy or a Bible study participant or whatever. Does anyone else relate to this, living in a prison of false self? Well, no more. For $23.99, in five easy steps, you too can be the you you're always meant to be. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, though, wouldn't it be nice, and this is what we try, we're sold on TV and in culture, it would be nice if we could easily fully know ourselves so that all of our choices and actions are authentic and true to who we were created to be. And of course, the market for self-help books and seminars is huge. Now, some of these do amazing work that helps to lead us into the person who we are and into healing and depth. But some of them are simply making easy money from a desperate world that longs to live in the freedom of being yourself and knowing your value. And nothing sells like a quick fix. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you've heard us talk about, these, about three priorities that we felt God led us to for this moment in time as a community. That by God's presence, we are sent into the world in mission. By God's presence, we belong. And by God's presence, we are renewed. And weaving all through these three in many ways, weaving throughout our whole discipleship as followers of Jesus is the thread of living out who God has created us to be within the community of faith and in the world. Knowing who we are as beloved children of the living God of creation, created as unique and wonderful, complex persons, interconnected and interrelated with God, with one another, and with all of creation. And the deeper we know and live in this, the more freely we are able to open ourselves up to restoration, to renewal, to welcome others in belonging as we ourselves are welcomed in belonging. And the more we are able to serve joyfully in our sentness. So we're going to spend the next few weeks together journeying through uh, different aspects of the complexity of how God has formed us. On Sunday mornings, our focus will be on the ways that God has shaped, is shaping, and will continue to shape us in Christ. And if you're interested in going a bit deeper than, than what we're exploring together Sunday mornings, going deeper and discovering more about how God has shaped and is shaping you, we are, I made a joke, but we are using this book and some online assessment tools that go along with it. And if you're interested in learning in community, uh, as Sam mentioned, we have small groups who would love to welcome you to join in, even just for this um, uh, six-week period.
If you are interested, reach out to Abby. And if you don't know Abby, she is uh, sitting comfortably in the back, in the seats that are there for, you know, for feeding the babies. But she's anticipating the time that she'll spend back there once their baby comes, I guess. As we begin our journey together over the next so month or so, we wanted to begin from the middle of Psalm 139. Well, not specifically in the middle of Psalm 39, but with laying the foundation um, of the depth of the deep truth that we find there. 14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Anyone who has ever studied physiology, so the human body, or psychology, or sociology, or anthropology, or any kind of ologies, I mean, really, actually, if you think about it, anyone who's actually thought about their own breath and wondered, how, how is that possible? How does that happen? They know that what it means to be human is complex and is wondrous. In fact, the more science teaches us about the realities of existence, the more wondrous and complex and worship-inspiring it is. No matter how deeply we understand, no matter how much we can we research and we explore the realities of creation and humanity, there will always be so much that we don't understand. And for those of us who believe in God, whether you believe in a literal six days of creation or whether you believe that God is the divine love behind evolution and the Big Bang, the awe and wonder of it all leads us to proclaim in worship along with the psalmist. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And then as our eyes move from this expansive and ever-expanding universe to our neighbors and to ourselves, it almost becomes even harder to fathom that this God of all of creation, a God who isn't done creating as the universe continues to expand, created you. And specifically, created you with intention and with beauty and with complexity. And more than you will ever know about yourself, God knows everything about you. How you are knit together in the very fabric of your physical being, your personality, your abilities, your desires, your passions, your experiences, your physical and social location, everything. And in the center of all of who you are is God's image. All your wondrous and beautiful and unique and sometimes hot mess of complexity, you are God's image bearer. Yes, sin is a reality. But God, as a loving Father, sees us through Jesus in our beauty and uniqueness made in God's image. Uh, as uh, author's name is Eric Ries. Uh, and in this book, uh, he writes this. The God of the universe began making a masterpiece out of you, even as you were taking shape in your mother's womb. God himself is the one who breathed life into you, and God doesn't create anything without value. Like an original painting or sculpture, you are one of a kind. 
There is no one else like you, which is why your heavenly Father longs for you to discover just how special and unique you are. And we believe that's true, which is why we're spending um, the next month on this. Now, here's something that I think is worth ruminating on. Um, you may not, and so that's fine. But so th- I think about how God right, is infinite. So there is no end, right? You can't, you can't add up anything to equal to God. God is infinite. And when God creates a human being, God makes them in their image, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet humans are finite, right? So the image of God in any human can only reflect a portion of God's infinite image. Which means that while we are equally made in God's image, as finite creations, we reflect a part of God's infiniteness in our unique finiteness in a way that no one else ever has and no one else ever will. No matter how many people will exist in all of history, there is no one who will ever reflect the part of God's infinite love that you do. There is no one in all of history, before or to come, that reflects God's infinite love in a way that you do. And in this way, you are a gift to the world. As you reveal God in a way that no one else ever will. Like a work of art that reflects the heart of the artist, there is no one that can reflect the love of God in the particular and unique way that you do. Uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, Loyola, I'm like Sam here. It's, it's easier to say apparently than, uh, or harder to say than uh, jewelry. <laughs> Just kidding. 16th century priest, St. Ignatius, who founded the Jesuits, he once wrote this. A rough and unshapen log has no idea that it can be made into a statue that will be considered a masterpiece. But the carver sees what can be done with it. So many do not understand that God can mold them into saints until they put themselves into the hands of the almighty artisan. When you see yourself as a rough and unshapen log, or like the image in scripture where God is the potter and we are the clay, when you see yourself just as this blob of mushy, (laughs) slimy clay, God sees you for who you have been created to be. A beautiful piece of God's own handiwork. What we see is rough, cast-offable, unshapable, unmalleable, broken beyond despair or hope, repair or hope. God sees the deep beauty through the eyes of divine love as a holy artisan. And it is important for us to discover and accept this truth about ourselves. However, As we considered a few weeks ago, it is also important us to discover and accept this truth of the person next to you, your local and global neighbors, and also your local and global enemies, all made in the image of God, reflecting God in a way that you and I can't and never will. 
Which means that the person next to you, the person checking your groceries at the grocery store, the person you judge for not living the way you think that they should, the person living in a bombed out ruins of a Ukrainian village, they reflect God's image in a way that no one ever has or ever will. And this is one of the reasons why God calls us to live justly in the world. The more we discover this gift, the more we are able to grow in our own self-awareness of our own unique complexities, the more that we are able to then live in and live out who we truly are as beloved children of God and in a way that loves others as we have been loved. Growing in self-awareness is not just for ourselves, it is also our gift to the world as more and more we reflect the beauty of God through the uniqueness of our being. Now this is why knowing yourself through deepening of self-awareness, now self-help books have only came in the stage in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. But deepening self-awareness has always been a key pillar of almost every contemplative Christian spirituality movement throughout history. As the Jesuit priest James Martin writes, a first pillar of Christian spirituality has, has always been self-awareness. Cultivating the habit of continuous self-reflection and learning. And it is through this continuous learning and self-reflection done with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we are more and more able to see God's work in us and God's work in the world. And the goal isn't simply to feel good about ourselves, but to know God and to worship God with our lives and the fullness of our being. Now, Donald Gertz, a mentor of mine who was a longtime part of Spring Garden, uh, he used to say that if you agree with everything that an author says in a book, you haven't actually read it. <laughs> or at least you didn't actually interact with it in any significant way. So, while there is great, well, there is worth to this book, we obviously think so, or we wouldn't be using it. That would just be irresponsible of us. There are a few assumptions. This is kind of an odd way to start a series, but there are a few assumptions in the author that for me personally, I think are key to understanding, uh, to our own understanding and our approach to self-awareness. Firstly, Rees mentions, uh, Rees is the author's name. He mentions a few times this idea of once you discover who you are. Once you've reached this discovery, then all of these things can follow as if there is going to be a point in any of our lives on this side of the new creation and new heaven where we have actually fully arrived, where we have complete, full self-awareness and live 100% who we are going to be. Again, the universe is constantly expanding. The human mind is always creating new neural pathways. God is constantly doing a new thing with every day. There is nothing about creation as a whole or you as a person that has arrived or that is unchanging. We need to, we used to, we thought that for hundreds of years, but we don't, we know that's not true. We are constantly changing. We are always on some level of transformation or deformation. 
of new life or death and decay or daily resurrection. Knowing yourself isn't a linear thing where, you know, you, you progress to this stage of self-awareness. Now you've arrived and how all your inner tensions are resolved because now you can live out the best you. You can live out exactly who God's created to be. I've arrived and now I just need to live from that moment. The reality is, and I think the biblical reality, is that we never arrive in this life. Now, yes, theologically, we can talk about places how in Christ we are sanctified now and we are healed now. In the theological realm and in a spiritual realm, but we never fully arrive in this life. In an ontological, the realities of creation. So I find it somewhat uh, ironic. Therese likes to critique self-help books, but I actually find his concept that there, there is a point that you kind of, once you get there, I think this is actually kind of a humanistic self-help concept, that it's sold to us as consumers who simply want to conquer our limits and arrive at our best self in five easy steps, and we can, we can get there. It's, you know, in uh, Whatever it is, 215 pages for 25.99, right? Now he he wouldn't say that, um, but I think that his language has this assumption, and I just want us to be aware that this is a lifelong journey. Our whole lives will be spent growing and forming and changing, sometimes in big ways, but often in little tiny small movements. Even while the core of who we are as beloved children and our value and worth never changes. To the picture of God being God's handiwork, it's true, we are God's handiwork. But in this life, we aren't finished piece of art on display in a museum or collector's wall. We are the unfinished painting that the artist continues to apply brushstrokes. And to, and to spread layers of underpainting, of shadowing and color. We are the clay that contains all of the essence of the finished vessel, but the potter continues to shape. And in places where we have dried up and become unmalleable, when we place ourselves in the artist's hand, God soaks us in the waters of baptism in the Holy Spirit to soften and to reshape us and to continue molding us. We are God's handiwork as art in process of continual creation and growing and transformation. This is the work of the Spirit. Secondly, as we continue for the next few weeks to follow the basic framework of this book, it spends some time focusing on five pieces of what shapes us as humans. And I think, obviously, again, we're using it because I think these are very helpful and important. Spiritual gifts... Uh, our desires and passions, what he calls the heart, our abilities, our inherent personality, and our experiences. And a strength of this concept is that it seeks to weave together different aspects of who we are. It acknowledges that what it means to be human is to be a complexity of inseparable parts. I'm not sure if you know this old metaphor. I mean, it was used to, to di differentiate men and women. <laughs> which I think is completely wrong because I fall in the woman's category in, the, in this metaphor. But the, there's this idea that uh, we aren't waffles. 
Have you heard this? Waffles and spaghetti? I think it's terrible to talk about duality of uh, gender. But I think it's a good illustration to help us understand reality, I think, of the human. We like to think of ourselves as waffles. Can you picture a waffle? It's usually a square, unless you get an ego, in which case it's a circle. And it has grid patterns, right? And you can cut along the grid pattern, and you can identify, here's this square, here's this square, here's this square, this square, right? Everything is separated by nice, neat lines, compartmentalized, kept safe and isolated from one another. And when you want to work on one thing or think about something or change something, you just got to, let's just get this like one square, and I'm going to change this one square, right? And it doesn't affect anything else. But that's not how we're created. That's not who we are. And that's not who God is. We're more like <laughs> we're more like a. Um, sorry, I lost my uh, spot on this. <laughs> Spaghetti, but I had a good way of wording it. But anyway, we're more like a pot of not just spaghetti noodles, but unrinsed spaghetti noodles. <laughs> We're all intertwined, interwoven, interconnected, and we're stuck together. You can't separate. Even if you try to go, I want to pull out this noodles because we didn't rinse it or put on oil or something. It's all stuck together in this clump. And what I want to acknowledge at the outset is that the five noodles of this book is not actually the fullness of what shapes us. These five are a start, they're important, they're easier for, for books and for humans to, to interact with, and they're very helpful. Obviously, again, we're doing it. The five are a start, but we are way too complex to pretend that they are a whole. And a significant piece of what shapes us that I think can't be ignored is what is called intersectionality. You know how uh, an intersection is where roads cross, right? So our, our church is on the intersection of Kenneth and Spring Garden, right? In some levels, it's a waffle picture, <laughs> I suppose. But, so an intersection is where roads cross. So intersectionality is kind of like the noodles picture. is where multiplicity, and that just means a whole bunch, of paths cross. All going over the same spot. So in that intersection... There isn't, all of those roads converge there, but in the intersection, they're actually just one spot in the middle of the intersection, right? Multiple roads, but just one thing. And our intersectionality, a huge part of who we are is this intersectionality, and it's not only of these five things, you know, personality, gifts, desires, etc., but it also includes our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our sexual identity, our social class, our disabilities, and all kinds of other forms of difference. And one thing that intersectionality speaks to is not just these different things that are part of who we are, this intersection of multiple things that make up who we are, but it is also about the ways that power and privilege, that inequality and powerlessness Social location and dislocation, in these places of intersectionality, they powerfully influence the ways we are shaped. It isn't just about discovering who we are, but being aware of the ways that power and privilege 
and inequality and powerlessness affect us in, in a complex weaving of so many different ways that we can't just talk and think of ourselves as one. I can't just work on myself as a privileged white person. I'm also a male. I'm a cisgendered heterosexual. I'm 48 with back problems and chronic and depression. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, we are intersectionalities of all of these things. I grew up middle class, which affects and shapes the way that I view the world and experience the world. All of these things are part of who we are. And we need to give space and thought and permission and forgiveness to have our eyes opened and to accept what the, these parts of who we are, to accept them not in a way that validates the evil or, or suffering or powerlessness, but in a way that acknowledges, yes, this is here, and God, what are you doing within me and within our society to make me more Christ-like within this? God wants to move within the full intersectionality of who we are as individuals to reveal each person's beauty and deep worth as beloved children of God, created in God's image, bringing transformation and maturation to most of all love. And finally, <laughs> Rees uh, talks about how discovering who we are is ultimately figuring out what God wants us to do. That it's about doing the thing that God created us to do. Now, I do believe that being created in God's image, knowing who we are and our worth, helps us to serve joyfully. It helps us to do in a way that is authentic, that there are good works prepared in advance for us, right? And with our faith in our lives, we are going to be doers. But I also believe more fundamentally, that life generally and self-awareness specifically is not about finding the one thing that we're supposed to do. It's about God wanting us to be, to be in Christ, to know our worth, not as human doings, but as human beings. Now, of course, the more we are able to sit and simply be who God created us to be, that will cause us to do, but the doing never comes first. Well, when the doing comes first, we are led into places of falseness. The more we are able to sit and simply be who God created us to be, that will cause us to do. To live out our being in the world in a way that reflects our authentic, God-imaged, unique, and beautiful selves in a way that deeply witnesses to and enacts divine love in the world. More than anything, God's desire for us is to be in Christ. To be in the Holy Spirit. To be in the Father. To be in the midst of the divine communion that is God, that is love. And it is there, and there alone, we are able to see ourselves for who we are. Beautiful, complex, fearfully, wonderfully made. Yes, sometimes a hot mess. Unique 
image of God bearers who are God's gift to each other, who are God's gift to creation and God's gift to the world. God has beautiful things planned for all of us. But the greatest thing he has for us is for us to know that we are beloved. That we reflect God in the world. That we are a gift. God is the giver. We are the gift. And we receive the gift, which is love. Let's pray. God, you have searched us and you know us. You know when we sit down, you know when we rise, you perceive all of our thoughts from afar. Nothing is hidden from you. Thank you for creating us with intentionality and with beauty and with worth. Thank you for placing your image within us. We praise you because we are faithfully and wonderfully made. We praise you because our neighbors and our enemies are fearfully and wonderfully made. Help us to live out this truth. Help us to be moldable, to be malleable in your hands as you continue to do the work of shaping us into Christ-like love as unique and beautiful children. Amen.